If you have uh, a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to the first chapter of Genesis. We are in this uh, series on the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And it falls to me, as uh, the schedule um, was put together, to speak, to preach this morning about goodness. This fruit among these other eight, which are the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit-born, Spirit-nourished evidences of our union with Jesus Christ, who is the personification of, the embodiment of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's the Spirit who unites us to Jesus. It is the Spirit who nurtures this fruit in our lives. And it is goodness that we'll look at this morning. And since the word appears seven times, as you'll hear me say again in just a moment, in the first chapter of the Bible, it seemed like a good place for us to go to think about what goodness is. And so let me read Genesis 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, though I'll be referring to it. I'm just going to begin at verse 26 and then read through verse 3 of chapter 2. This is the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the life of breath in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you grant your spirit, we ask this week by week by week because we recognize that without your spirit, these words remain black words on a white page. But when your spirit attends the reading and preaching of your word, they live and we need for them to live. 
And so come, Holy Spirit of God, and show us marvelous things in this portion of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, what is goodness? What is goodness? I don't recall, honestly, that I've ever thought in a really focused or somewhat systematic way about what goodness is, how to think about goodness, uh, until I was assigned the responsibility to preach on goodness. And so for the last several weeks, I have been thinking about it. Maybe you haven't asked yourself that question, but it's a good question to ask. What, what is goodness? It's a word that's familiar. It shows up a lot in our vocabulary. When it does, typically we're using that word to describe something which in our judgment is pleasurable or admirable or something that conforms to our standards of behavior or something that conforms or fits our aesthetic sensibilities. And so we say things like, good dog, or he's a good little boy, or she is a good employee, or that was a good meal, or that is a good painting, a good book, a good flower arrangement, a good song, or to quote Carly Simon, these are the good old days. That's how we use the word good. But what is good? What, what is truly good? What is goodness? Since it's a fruit of the Spirit, you would think that the perfect expression of goodness would be God himself. God is good. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is goodness. Goodness originates in him among the persons of the Godhead. But what does it look like? What does it look like? Well, we catch a first glimpse, a first glimpse of what goodness looks like in the creation. It's not the only glimpse that we get. We get other glimpses in the hymn that we opened with, I've sort of set you up for this sermon because that hymn reflects the works of God as we find them in his works of creation and providence and recreation. So have those categories in your mind as we think together about goodness, beginning with where this word first appears, this word good in this account of the creation. As I mentioned, it appears seven times. Once for each of the six days of creation, and then the seventh time as a kind of a summary judgment. God taking a step back from his creative work, looking at his creative work, and saying this, all of it, is very good. What's interesting, this word appears over 550 times in the Old Testament. Most of the time, the preponderance of times, this word good is translated good. But that's not the only way it's translated. It's translated in several other ways. Sometimes it's translated pleasant. Sometimes it's translated rich or valuable or agreeable or prosperous or happy 
or right or excellent. All of those words translate this one three-letter little word, three letters in the Hebrew, good. And that, to me, is an insight, actually, into what is going on in the creation. Words like pleasant and happy and rich and prosperous are words that begin to capture the wonder of the creation. Six days of the creation are like a symphony. Maybe you've heard that analogy used before. The opening bars are verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's a kind of a haunting, brooding, dark opening to this great symphony. But then comes this next statement. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That and, that little conjunction, is a big, big word. And it almost sets in antithesis the presence of the Spirit and what is described in the first verse about the primordial chaos of the creation. So it's almost as though you could read, and darkness was over the face of the deep, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now why would you say that? Why would you see an antithesis in that verse, rather than a simple continuation of narrative? Well, it's because of what's going to happen. It's because of what is going to happen across the six days of the creation. That God the one engaged in this creative activity, beginning with this disordered chaos, brings order and form and shape to the creation. And then he fills up the creation. He forms and he fills. And what he fills the creation with is stunning beauty, fullness, life, harmony, interdependence, color, majesty, tenderness, delicacy, all of that is crafted out of what was dark and empty and chaotic. And when he comes to the end of his creative activity, the portion of the first chapter that we read, the culminating act of the creation is the creation of the man and the woman, human beings who bear his likeness, who reflect to some real degree, in some real ways, something of the very nature of the being of God. And then God takes a step back from the whole thing, and he says, that was very good. It's more than just an aesthetic judgment. It's more than just a moral or ethical judgment. It's more than just an expression of personal preference. It is God taking pleasure in what he conceived and then brought into existence and made. It is God taking delight in the fact that the creation does what he intended for it to do. It reflects his glory, his beauty, his majesty, his tenderness, his orderliness. And he takes great pleasure in it. That's, that's what God is doing when he rests on that seventh day after the completion of his work. He's not taking a nap. It's not a Sunday afternoon constitutional. This is the infinite God of heaven and earth. No, 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 no. 
he's taking a step back from what he has seen, what he has done, and finding great delight in it. The holy, consummately, the creation of these remarkable beings, male and female. When Barbara and I and our girls were living in Richmond, Indiana, planning our first church, we bought our first home. And we had a great backyard, except that the yard was about two feet above the level of the driveway. And there was a flagstone wall that enclosed that backyard. It ran the circumference of that backyard. Our little girls weren't going to be able to climb a two-foot stone wall to get into the backyard where they could play. That just wasn't going to work. So Barb said, why don't you build some steps? Three steps ought to do it. I'd never built any steps before. I don't know how to build steps. I don't know how to build steps. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not the son of a carpenter. But I went to the lumber yard, and I talked with one of the staff who actually was a carpenter. And he drew some pictures, and he gave me some instructions. I never knew what a stringer was, but he explained to me what a stringer was. You've got to have a stringer. He showed me how to measure. There's some particular things you have to do to measure to make sure that you get the last step in exactly the right place. So I bought my materials, threw everything in the car, had my instructions, brought it home, measured, measure twice, cut once, measured, cut, began to assemble, and hoped for the best. And when I finished, I slipped those steps up against that wall and I was astonished. The top step was absolutely flush with the top of that little wall. And I took a step back and I said, those are the most beautiful steps I've ever seen. That is absolutely the perfect three-step access to the backyard. And I found great delight in it. This is 35 plus years ago, and I'm till, still telling the story. That's what happened in the creation. God knew what he wanted to do, conceived what it was that he wanted to do, and found great joy and delight in the thing that he had done. There's another thing about the creation. It isn't just that it's symmetrical and diverse and harmonious and delicate and majestic and, and ordered and intricate and all of those things. It is also what I would call a pulsating with life creation. The narrative tells us, Genesis 1 tells us, that God has given every green plant and tree with seed in it as food. Verse 29, food for humankind, food for the birds of the air, food for the beasts of the field, and even the creepy things that creep on the ground. There's food for them. That's a lot of mouths to feed. How are you going to feed all of those mouths? Especially as they begin to proliferate, grow, and expand. How are you going to feed them all? You feed them all by filling the creation with a pulsating with life feature and character. You, you build a creation that is prodigious in its ability to care for itself. 
under the sovereign guidance, rule, and sustenance of God. And that's what the creation is. Think about it. Think about an apple tree. When God created an apple tree, he didn't create something that would only bear one piece of fruit with one seed in it. He created something that would bear dozens and scores and hundreds of pieces of fruit with dozens and scores of seeds in each piece of fruit. Prodigious, lavish, exorbitant. If the conditions were right, you could take one apple seed, grow an apple tree, and given enough time from that one apple tree, you could cover the face of the earth with apples. Do it pears, do it peaches. God in the creation manifests not only this remarkable creativity, but his creation is prodigious, exorbitant. And there's another thing. There's another thing about God's creation, this pulsating with life creation. Not everything God made is purely functional. You ever think about that? Not everything that God made is simply utilitarian. Much of what God has made is there to enjoy, to drink in, to take in. Some of you are aware that since moving to Memphis, I've grown rather fond of peonies, or peonies, I guess, as we say in Mississippi or in Memphis. Some friends gave us a book, Barb and me, a book about peonies. The botanists debate the number of native species of peony there are, somewhere between 35 and 40. But from that relatively small number, hundreds, hundreds, many hundreds of hybrids have been cultivated, cultivars, cultivated by human beings who have been endowed by their creator good language for July 4th, endowed by their creator with their own creative capabilities, with imagination, with skill, with passion, themselves imitating the God who made them and drawing from the creation all of this pulsating with life potential. There isn't just one peony out there. There are hundreds of different peonies. Do you see what I mean? When God says something is good, he is saying, this is what I had in mind. This is what I intended so that my glory, my beauty, my power, my majesty, my tenderness, my goodness might be put on display. Psalm 104 tells us this. Psalm 104 says, may God rejoice in his works. It's the kind of world that he made, a world in which he himself takes pleasure. I do have to say this at this point. If you, if you are one of those who, who is doubtful, doubtful about the existence of a beautiful, tender, majestic, spectacularly imaginative God, let me ask you to hit the pause button and just look. Look at this creation. 
walk through the Memphis Botanic Garden in the springtime. Ask yourself, what, what is sufficient to account for this beauty? What is sufficient to account for this diversity? What is sufficient to account for this harmony and interdependence? What is sufficient to explain what it is that I see? What is big enough to account for why I respond the way that I do? And why is it, why is it when I see some marvel of engineering, some miracle of medical technology, some work of art, painting, sculpture, clothing design, hear a remarkable piece of music, why is it that I think, wow, I'd love to meet that person, but I walk through this glory-filled world and I don't stop to ask the question, who did this? Who did this? The Bible wants you to know there is an infinite, personal, eternal, limitless in power and glory God who stands behind it. And who stands at the apex of this creation? Not cosmic accidents, not mere conglomerations of physical and chemical material, but a man and a woman, image bearers, given by their creator a capacity for giving birth to more and more image bearers who would steward the creation and draw out of the creation all of its pulsating with life potential so that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. And God says, oh, that's very good. But it doesn't stop with the creating of the creation, and I have to be painfully brief with this. God didn't just set it all in motion and step away. He maintains it. He keeps it. He watches over it, the whole of the creation, and especially his people. Listen to what the psalmist says. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The sea, great and wide, teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And there's this, Psalm 103. These first five verses, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We could go many places in the Psalms for similar texts. God watches over his world. These are his works of providence providing for his world and especially blessing his people in these remarkable ways described in Psalm 103. There's still one more thing for us to recognize. Not just God's works in creation and in providence, 
He's not only good there. He's not only prodigious there. He's not only exorbitantly good there. But he is especially so in his saving work. Acts chapter 10, God, through a vision given to Peter, leads Peter to the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion who was a Gentile, and Cornelius himself had had a vision. He was set up for this. He knew that somebody was coming. And when Peter came, he was invited to preach to the gathered guests. And among other things, he said this, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea, from Galilee and from the time after John's baptism was proclaimed, and how at his baptism, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good. He went about doing good. And we heard about that last week. We heard a beautiful example of it. Such a wonderful reminder of it in Parker's sermon last week from Luke 8. This woman with her issue of blood. There she was, ashamed, unclean, ostracized, impoverished, ceremonially, culturally, relationally filthy, and Jesus moved toward her. The leper in Mark chapter 1. Face eaten away, ears, eyelids, portions of his nose, fingers eaten away. Jesus takes this man's face in his hands and cleanses him. Jesus takes his uncleanness to himself and gives his cleanness to the leper. Luke chapter 7, the casket carrying the dead son of a widowed woman. There were laws against touching a dead person or touching something that a dead person has touched. But Jesus touched the beer and raised the boy to life. The notorious woman, a little bit later in Luke 7, the woman who crashed the dinner party of the Pharisee, a dinner party to which Jesus had been invited. She crashes the party. And then she kneels beside him, takes his feet in her hands and washes his feet with her filthy, sin-laden tears. Have you ever noticed how many times Jesus touches or is touched by the unclean? He's lavish. He's lavish, prodigious in his mercy and compassion and in his power. Folks, these stories that we read of the woman with the issue of blood or the notorious woman or the leper or the dead son, they're pictures. They're pictures. And what they are pictures of is Jesus doing his work of recreation, taking what is dark and chaotic and empty and formless, what is unclean, dirty, sinful. He takes that and he produces a thing of beauty. That's what salvation is. That's what the works of redemption are. 
It's not less than your justification. It's not less than this legal declaration that before God you are declared innocent. It's not less than that. It's not less than the restoration of your relationship to God, your creator who has become your savior. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Salvation is restoration. It's reformation. It's making something new out of something that was old. It is transformation. Jesus went around doing good, making people new. And he still does. Some of you became Christians at crisis moments in your life. And you remember the old. And you know that you are new. So what is goodness? It's all of this, friends. In God's works of creation and providence and recreation, he is showing us what real goodness is. Exorbitant, lavish, prodigious, overflowing power and beauty, majesty and tenderness, justice and mercy, compassion and righteousness. And these are the things that are to be seen in me. These are the fruit of the Spirit. As I am in union with Jesus, Jesus by his Spirit remakes me, recreates me, produces this goodness in me. Where do you see this goodness the most clearly? Right here, isn't it? at this table this table that turns our attention back to the cross what is goodness it is Jesus laying down his life for you his friends I think you hear this every week you hear it over and over and over again and it can be sometimes so familiar that you can dismiss it friends don't dismiss it what is goodness The embodiment, personification of goodness in its ultimate expression is that, Jesus, laying down his life for you, bearing the awful weight, burden of your sin. Why? Because he is good. He is lavishly good. So what does it look like? What does it look like for me? What does it look like for us to manifest the fruit of goodness? What does it look like for the Spirit to produce goodness in us? It seems to me that it would mean that in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our interactions with one another, in our marriages, families, in our friendships, in our life together in this church, and even in our relationships with those outside the church, out there in the world, it seems that goodness would mean that all of our relationships would be filled to overflowing with beauty, with tenderness, with other-centeredness, with lavish and prodigious forgiveness, mercy, and compassion by the grace of God, for beauty and power and loveliness 
to be made manifest in our lives that would stand in such stark contrast to what we encounter in the world that the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 would be fulfilled, that people would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. It seems to me that that's what this reflects. So may God grant us grace. We need God grant us grace by his spirit's power to give evidence in our own lives of the goodness that we see in the triune God and especially in the person and work of Jesus. God grant us that grace. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you because we need you. This fruit of goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. And we beg of you that you would move across the face of this congregation by your Spirit and produce this fruit of goodness that manifests itself in all of these remarkable ways. We ask you to do this for the sake of the name of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.